The Cost of Goods Told podcast is made possible by the following sponsors. Duke's Premium Meats Home Delivery is committed to providing you with the best quality meat delivered right to your door. Offering certified Angus beef, grass-fed beef, Wagyu, and many more premium options, nobody beats Duke's Meats. Make sure to check out all that Duke has to offer at dukespremiummeats.com. Chriswell Culinary aims to create a new standard of unique, affordable hot sauces that satisfies the more developed cravings of today. Bernie Brand Texas-style hot sauce is a boldly layered sauce with density and personality to proudly represent Texas. Go to BernieBrand.com to find a retailer near you. That's Bernie, B-O-E-R-N-E, Brand.com. Zero Point Organics grows and supplies microgreens for over 30 major restaurants in the Houston area. Consistently perfect quality in flavor and appearance, their microgreens will be the best you or your customers have ever had every single time. Go to zero, Z-E-R-O, dash pointorganics.com. Welcome to the Cost of Goods Told podcast. My name is Connor. I'm a chef and media producer. I am joined, as always, by Darren Lafferty, my co-producer. Happy Super Bowl. Yeah, I, not watching any of it, man. Do not care. Lame. Yeah, I know. Go Red Team. Go ahead. Go, <laughs> red team. go Sports. I'm in it for the commercials. I mean, really. There you yeah. go. There's no Texas teams involved, so I'm, I'm going to go for the commercials. <laughs> Well, this is uh, a special podcast uh, for many reasons. One, it is the end of season two, um, kind of coming full circle, uh, especially with uh, Ara being here, Ara from Harlem Road, Texas Barbecue, uh, who was guest number one um, when we had literally one subscriber to the podcast, and that fool was me. I you think know? that was you, right? Yeah. <laughs> Thick and thin. He's been through yeah. with thick and thin with us. Thick and thin, especially uh, if you go back and watch the video version of it and you see how janky that setup was with my computer and everything. And now <laughs> we've actually grown much and thanks to you, Darren. Um, we've got a special guest on, a guy who comes with uh, a lot of expertise. Um, I've got something written down here. I hope it's okay. Uh, I said, the Pope of Barbecue and the Temple of Taylor from the Cathedral of Smoke in the Vatican State of Brisket, Wayne Mueller. How you doing, sir? <laughs> How do you feel wow. about that, Wayne? <laughs> in the name of the salt, pepper, and holy smoke, <laughs> yeah. dig in. <laughs> Well, How are you guys doing? How is everyone? We're Thanks for having great. me. Absolutely. Man. Thank you for making time, carving time out. Uh, oh, it's my pleasure. visit with us. Oh, it's great. This is awesome. I'm uh, actually extremely excited. I've been thinking about how I would think this podcast would go, and I think maybe it will be in part two, because um, I think part one, we're going to you know take time, hear your journey. If anybody hasn't heard it, you know, Tales of the Pits did a wonderful job of, of doing it in a, in a two-part series, and I think it was great. Um, there's a bunch of other podcasts, so we may get the condensed version because I know that there's going to be other things besides, you know, the history of Louis Mueller Barbecue uh, that we'd like to get to. But I do think it's awesome that we've got two guys who come with a ridiculous amount of expertise, a ridiculous amount of craftsmanship, uh, from kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, and so I've kind of got some leading questions that I think will, will hopefully spark some good conversation that will be both barbecue-related and just kind of life and industry-related um, because we've got guys kind of from opposite ends of the spectrum, if, if you know, that's fair to say. So, um, Wayne, if you don't mind uh, just kind of starting us off, I know we've got a lot of history to cover, but, you know, if, if, if you don't mind just kind of taking us back to uh, step one. with 
<laughs> it was a cool autumn morning on September 28, 1965. Start as your as an indentured servant. <laughs> well, it was shortly after my birth that the indentured servitude began. Yeah. yeah um, my father in 1974, who was working for his father, who was a grocer primarily, but also had a barbecue restaurant. My father was a butcher. Um, he had just returned from Korea and was trying to decide what he wanted to do with life. And my grandfather said, you're going to work. <laughs> for me, for cheap. And I think the indentured servitude started there, at least the down. generational aspect of it. Yeah. And my grandfather decided to, to hang up his, his commercial apron in 74. My father decided, I don't, I don't want to do the grocery thing. The box stores are just dominating the market. It's, it'll be too difficult. I don't know. I'll do the restaurant. So yeah. he chose to do the restaurant and he drug me along with him. He needed some labor and I was cheap. And I couldn't say no. You'd work for food? Yeah, well, no. He wouldn't let me eat there. Oh my goodness. No, I could not eat the food. That was, that was prepared for the, the guest. Okay. My grandfather actually sort of gave me a, a, a sideways hack and said, here's, here's what you can do with some bread. You know? <laughs> and, and, you know, he had me strain the onions off of our beef dip, you know, uh, and sort of fold it over and he goes, that'll tide you over. So that's You'll what, get used to the heat. Don't so worry about it. Pro tips. Pro tips have been around a long time. Long time. <laughs> There's always ways around everything. I'm sure. And Grandpa was kind enough to show me his. That's you awesome. Know? Um, so I worked there, menial sort of stuff, as, as you would expect. Cleaning floors, bathrooms, taking out trash, washing dishes, making sure the dining room was set properly. You know, I did that for a number of years. Probably I was around nine. That was eight when I started. When I was about nine, nine and a half, I started twisting sausage for dad. Hmm. And I wasn't tall enough yet to see over the backsplash on the table. So he would, Coke crates were, were all wooden back then. So you could stand on it without any problem. Uh, he stacked a couple of them up and I would stand on those crates. And he had tape on, taped up on the backsplash with two marks, the length of a, a link of sausage. Nice. And he said, that's your mark. Hit it. Yeah. And that's pretty much what it was. Really? He was like, yep, yeah. you better do it right. <laughs> Otherwise, you don't get shoes. <laughs> wow. You, you know? So I started sausage then. And really, I think the greatest thing my grandfather and father impl- imparted on me was besides a work ethic that was, you know, you're just going to do this because yeah. it's what we do. You're the oldest child and you get well, to lead I mean, the way. Well, I mean, but, you know, small town America, if you owned a farm, if your family owned a farm or a ranch, what do you, if you were kids, if you're old enough to carry a pail, yep. you're milking a cow. Sure. <laughs> I mean, because everybody had to pitch in. I yep. mean, that's part of the reason to have the family yep. is to make it, make your whole life livable. Right. Um, and small towns, independent businesses, same way. I mean, it, they were leading in the late mid to late 19th, 20th centuries was still that way. Today, it's a little different, I think. Yeah. Um, but they imparted on me that work ethic is one of the things. But they also were not fearful just to talk about things and challenges and problems and successes and things that they do and things that they've learned and things that they would av- advise you to avoid. And they're talking amongst each other. You just get to be the beneficiary of, right. of listening. You're the sounding A true, board. A true apprenticeship it. is about listening and yeah. watching for a long time to get comfortable with everything that goes on. Almost cre- it's almost like watching TV in a way because you're seeing all the action. You're not involved in it, right. but you're learning it. Mm-hmm. 
then when you do it, yes, you have your uncertainties about it because you're fumbling through it. There's no muscle memory. But at least you have some idea of what the process is and what it entails. Right. Yeah, so, being that fly on the wall, right? Right. And, and it's invaluable. Yeah. I can't tell you how much you glean from that and you don't even realize that you do until you try and, or attempt to train people who haven't had that and realize just what they don't know. And it's massive. Things you take absolutely for granted, they don't know. Right. So um, that's, a, that's a tough learning exercise. Sure. But, but that all helped prepare me, I think, in a way, first to leave. And I did. And the first train I could get out, I was gone. My father was very supportive of me going. He gave me the blessing, which made it all the more easier to, to take off. Um, but it also, he developed in me that, you know, you don't have to be smarter. You don't have to be better. You just have to care more. In other words, you, if, you're, if your work ethic is such, you're going to outwork most people that you're in competition with. Mm-hmm. And in that process, you're going to learn more, and you're going to be more adept and more in tune, and you're going to have more nuance available to you than they are because you're just going to have more exposure than yep. anybody else doing hour for hour what you're doing. Your career will advance. I didn't realize that until I got into it. And then you start noticing that it's so true. Why am I, why am I doing better than him? Mm-hmm. He is equally in, in every way. Or why am I doing better than her? She, in some ways, may be better than me in some things. Right. How does that happen? And it, I think it all just comes down to real true effort and caring. And I think so you, hit, you, you hit the nail on the head by saying caring. It's, most people don't care or they're in it for the wrong reasons. Yeah, being in it for the wrong reasons it yeah. will burn you out. In this industry, oh, yeah. more in than our, any other, yeah. if you're not in it for the right reason, if you're not in it for the love of what you're doing, it, will, it, it is the one industry I know will chew you up and spit you out. Yeah, it, it'll kill, literally kill you. Yeah. Yeah, it's a hard life. It's a hard life. Yeah. Um, which is why my father was like, yeah, you don't, you don't need to do this. We didn't go on vacations. We, uh, we didn't have much time together. When I saw my father, it was a blessing that I worked after school and on weekends because that's when I saw my father. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't see him otherwise. So we didn't get a chance to go play ball in the backyard. We didn't get a chance to go on vacations. We didn't have many opportunities to go even to a ball game. They were very, very few. And you cherish those moments when they happen. Yeah. I don't think we ever saw a ball game where the team we were rooting for won. It was a calamity. Yeah. It was a Rodney Dangerfield moment. <laughs> a lot of them. Yeah. You know? But it wasn't for a lack of effort. My dad was, you know, I, I feel that he was so unappreciated in his time. Um, I really feel that my mission today, as it is every day, is to bring more light to his contribution to what we do. Not just to Louis Miller Barbecue, but to the industry as a whole. Yeah. How m- many of the nuances and actions and, I think, settings come right back to him. Yeah. Even if my grandfather set them in motion, when my father took over, he had every opportunity to change everything. And he chose not to. And I think that was the pure genius of, of his operations and his experience of, of what he wanted the guests to have. So... I want you to be focused not just on how great the food is or how good the service is. I want you to be also be absorbed by the aesthetic, right. the environment that you're in. My father's decision not to change a thing and to stay organic um, was brilliant in and of itself. It's a hmm, it's a fucker to keep keep it up and running. I'm sure it really is. I mean, old buildings are a blessing and a curse. <laughs> this one's 120 years old and it acts 200. 
<laughs> if that's possible. Yeah. So are you describing me or the building? Uh, this, is, this, is, this is all building. I'm, or maybe me. Um, that building will aid you. But there's something that's... I heard tales that during Augustus' reign, um, that even then on the Capitoline Hill, there were the first, there was the first hut of Romulus. And it was a temple. By that time, it had to be 750, 800 years old. Mm-hmm. And it was a cherished mark of the city as the founding of the city. It wasn't a true cathedral or a temple where a god was worshipped, but Romulus was sort of deified. He was a demigod mm. amongst the Roman people mm. for bringing them what they have. Yeah. And in a way, I look at 206 West 2nd Street mm-hmm. as that <laughs> temple to, uh, you know, to Bobby and, and to, to maybe not quite as great extent to Louis. They both had e- immense parts to play, but I think that that's truly an ode to them. Well, you know? It sounds like just, and just from the brief readings that I've done and, and your brief description, the cliff notes that you've given us, is that your dad understood and lived and breathed how difficult that business could be, so much to the tune that he said, please go off and don't do this, right? Go, oh, yeah. go get an education. Sure. He goes, you have a brain. Go use it. <laughs> Pretty simple. He was probably Thanks a man of a few words, but, but that oh, was, that's all you needed, that, right? You, that's you know, all you needed. When, I, I, my dad, a man of few words. That's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> I start, I, you know, when I was in college, I, I smoked for a brief while. And the first time I smoked around my parents, it's one of those, you know, I can only imagine um, other instances where you come out and show a piece of yourself to your parents that they don't know. Um, my dad was unfazed completely. He had quit smoking years before, but he just asked me a simple question. And it was, you know, since when did you become a green piece of wood? And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, what happens to a green piece of wood? I said, it smokes. He goes, yeah. And, and I'm like, oh, I guess I'm pretty freaking stupid. Yeah, dad, I got it. Dad would talk to me metaphors, similes, that's how he communicated yeah. with me. And what I've learned, even though he didn't, he was a very conservative communicator, didn't speak a whole lot, very introverted, he found that using a base experience as a simile or a metaphor that most people experience, that he could communicate to people in such a way that they all understood what he was saying in a rudimentary form, um, which I think highly technical or academically inclined individuals mm-hmm. may talk over the head of people, right. and they don't get it, and right. they never get it. Right. I've learned that, you know, that there's a better way to tell a story to get people to understand what you're doing, and I learned that from him. It's, so that's what I do. It sounds like it promoted intelligence, but it also promoted the ability for people who spoke over you to dumb down a little bit and say, hey, here's the example that I'm using. Can you figure this out? Well, I mean, if you talk about a river, how many people have been to some body of water that's a, a moving body of water in yeah. their life at some yeah. point? Mm-hmm. You know, not counting this current gener- generation that never leaves the house. I'm sure they've seen one on TV. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so the experience level there is almost ubiquitous. That's something everybody can draw on. Right. So why not use things that they can relate to that aspect sure. of life. Sure. sure. Then you're speaking a language. It doesn't matter. You know, you're, it's not the language. It's not the verbiage that you're using that's conveying the, the message you're trying to make. It really is what's mm-hmm. happening and what they can relate to. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, he did a good job, I think, on 
what was it, Diners, Drive-Ins, and Drives, where I watched it. And you, you've got to convey that to Guy Fieri, who in his own right has his success and so forth, but his target demographic isn't, I don't know how to put it politely, but isn't quite up there in the echelon. So I think, I think it was kind of cool to see your, your dad translate that into a, a digestible uh, viewing experience for everybody. So. Oh, sure. <laughs> I, I, I told dad before we shot that, I said, be as funny as you can, you know, try to introduce a little coach, bit of levity and dad, it, you know, yeah, it's like telling a mushroom to be funny sometimes. <laughs> Not dad, it was, but I tell you what, he pulled it off. Yeah. You know, his whole tree comment was really funny in that episode. And I, it showed that, that bit of sarcasm yeah. um, that he, I loved about him. And uh, he got his point, I think, across pretty clearly that look, so this, I, isn't, this isn't really rocket science. It really is just about caring. Yeah. Now, your dad had a significant period of time working under your grandfather. No. Or working with, or no? No. Okay. He worked with Fred Fontaine for a number of years. Okay. Fred Fontaine was the manager of the restaurant from 1959 until 1974. Okay. So he had already logged in about 15 years of cooking there before my father got there. When my father returned from um, the Army, from Korea, it was in 1960. Three, and he then went and worked as a butcher for the next seven years. So he really cut his his teeth in the butchery, in the meat market, long before ever coming over to the restaurant. Okay, he was making sausage then. The sausage recipe we have is his. Um, I've made a few alterations, adding some peppers or whatever, but that base recipe is his, one hundred percent. And so much of what he knows about cooking. He both picked up from Fred and brought with him, just as I brought with me, because he was down there with my grandfather. They were cooking from 1946 on in the alleyway behind the grocery store. Right. He was right there in the thick of it. So he was, just like me, he had his responsibilities from the time I think he was nine. He started working around. Um, and just, I swear to God, my, my experience in, in my way, in my time, really mirrors and mimics his so I understood what he understood from that perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me a while. I mean, I had to be an adult. I had to leave and come back before I understood that perspective. Sure. But I, I could see his perspective on many things. And it was, um, it was really his techniques that I think helped stabilize the consistency of our food over time. Mm-hmm. Um, the introduction of wrapping briskets to hold them. That was a dad thing. Um, he and my grandfather, that was, you know, brisket was, was a gra- my grandfather's thing. Fred didn't want to do it. He didn't think anybody would buy it. He literally got threatened with his job to start cooking it, you know, and it was begrudgingly. <laughs> but the pit that we had, the brick pit, was mm-hmm. built for that. Hmm. So it's like, no, you're going to cook this. Yeah. <laughs> right? We're, this is going to replace Claude. It's got more fat. We can cook it quicker. It's a better carving ex- experience. It's just, it'll give us a better experience and the price point's the same. So we're going to do this. And now Packers will send us whole cases of this at a time. (laughs) We don't have to rely just on the sides of beef that we're breaking down every week. Sure. Mm -hmm. We'll never be able to supply it. So we're going to stabilize the menu. We're going to do this. And, um, you know, Fred did a really good job of being an extrovert and promoting the business with the people who came in. He did a good job cooking the food. And he was consistent cooking the food. And he built relationships with a lot of people that came in. Um, and my father took 
that bass and improved upon it. What he gave to me was this pristine thing. Um, and in some ways, I was forced to make some changes because they were better for the outcome. Every person, if you, you can't take a single link out of that chain and have this chain be unbroken and, and there not be, we, we wouldn't be here. Right. You can't take any one of those individuals out of this position, no matter what my personal feelings are of any of them, yeah. mm-hmm. and say, oh, this would be here or would be what it is without it. They all played their part. They all had their contribution to mm-hmm. make. Mm-hmm. And without any of them, there would be none of this. So I truly stand on the shoulders of all these men, um, and I am proud to do so. And it's hard work, and I appreciate their efforts more and more every day because they had to sell themselves out for this. Yeah. All of them. It didn't matter who they were, and there was just few of them. I feel like the Dallas Cowboys in a way. <laughs> you, had Tom, you had Tom Landry, <laughs> you know, up until 89. All the, what, 29 years of the Cowboys history, you had one coach. Yeah. Right? Um, and then you have this cascading of coaches. Well, you know, for this entire period, you have my, really, Fred, my dad, as that head coach. Yeah. And I come in, and then, you know, I've had a number of people come in and come and go under me. But the industry has changed so much since then. Oh, too. yeah. Mm-hmm. 2009, 2010, the industry changed. And I just happened to be right there with it. So yeah. I was forced to make a lot of changes, uh, adapt to what was happening in in the industry and in the market. Um, I think dad would approve, but there's no way, there's no guarantees on that. There's a lot of things he and I talked about. There's a lot of things we agreed on, a lot of things we didn't. And how he would feel about all of this, I think he'd just be shocked and amazed that people even cared. Really? Nobody cared before. I think he, the, the attention drawn on this, he would not have been comfortable with the celebrity of it. Hmm. He wasn't comfortable with even talking to people then. Hmm. So, to be sort of this superstar now, uh, I, don't, I don't know how well he would adjust. Mm. He's just not that kind. So, I don't know. So, so when you came back from college, you, you were sort of employed or asked to, and you were happy to jump in, back into the family business. Well, sort of. Sort of. Well, that's, that's kind of where I want to, you know, be, because we have Ara here, and Ara was someone who was in, in the industry and then became drawn to barbecue and now has been in it for, is this year? Five. Five. Yeah. Year I five. love Ara. Yeah. No, stop it. I love yeah. Ara. Ara now, most people don't amazing. realize, yeah, I've only been doing barbecue for only like four or five years. Right. That's it. He's amazing. So, but no, stop it. It's, it's a little bit of it's a true. different path. You, you've talked about there's been something primal about barbecue, yeah. something that drew you to barbecue. The, you know, the, I, I always wonder what, like when when I was prepping for this podcast, I wondered what your first years or your literally your first week doing it versus what your first week would be. Like, is there animosity? Is there anger? Is there mm-hmm. hey, I I was you know major league baseball and I was you know doing this you know and uh, or my, I'm See, sorry minor league uh, baseball you know managing and things like that and all all of that sort of career. For stuff. For me, having come from the fine dining background, it wasn't. I didn't ever look at. I'm also different than most chefs. So I truly love what I do. The cooking, the hours, any of that stuff, I don't look at it as, um, I care. I care about the food. I care about the history behind it. For me, it's all about putting love into the food. 
why why is Wayne's food so great is because he learned it from his dad and the influences that he had he was shown that care mm-hmm. okay most chefs don't have that advantage they've gone into the culinary school they've apprenticed and they get into it to become famous mm-hmm. I cook because I truly love to cook so and as far as barbecue goes I didn't grow up in the, in the US I grew up in Europe right but every culture in the world has some sort of cooking with live fire and smoke. Right. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's like one of the true international recognizable languages anywhere in the world. Right. I don't care if you're in the deserts in Jordan, <laughs> you are in Australia, or you are in France. They all cook with fire and wood and smoke. So it's one of those. Or if you're in Japan, they same. Right. Uh, so when I came into the barbecue world of cooking and what made me decide, I love Texas barbecue. To me, it is, it's got a very clean, it's amazing because it's just very simple, but it's time consuming. And when it's done right, it's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because you have to have love to make it come out right. Otherwise, it's just another piece of meat smoked, Right. And doing it commercially on a larger scale, you know, it's fine when you're doing, that's our blessing and our curse in our industry in barbecue is that everybody in Texas does barbecue in their home, in their backyard. So they're all, hey, I make the best brisket because my entire family loves it. So they're an expert, (laughs) right? But when you do one brisket compared to 100, right? It's a completely different story. What? Yeah. Are you sure? <laughs> yeah, and make every one of them come out exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah that's 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 the blessing and the curse of in our business, right? You know, there's there seems to be this unspoken animosity between the competitive circuit and and the commercial circuit <laughs> that there's an understanding that somehow votes from a judging panel is somehow superior to judging from foot traffic that comes in your door i always take the opposite position you know we don't have a week to prepare a single brisket or six slices of brisket right. you know we've got hours to prepare thousands of pounds for hundreds of people every day and they all have to say yes <laughs> you, you win you get my money right yeah and, that, and, and that, 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 yeah. that's that's you want to know pressure and having people depend on you yeah. having your staff who have families, who are supporting their mothers, right? Yep. Who have sick relatives that they're, that they're literally subsidizing with their efforts. I mean, to me, there's a, there's a more human story there. Mm-hmm. That means more to me than a trophy. Well, yeah. I think the longevity that you just sp- spoke of, right, between what's, what's more important, a trophy or a repeat customer? Right, someone who can help you keep those lights on, someone who helps you stay there a year, two years, three years, and then pass it down uh, to family members. I think that speaks uh, much louder than a trophy that sits on the wall and collects dust. To me, I mean, it's about relationships. Barbecue is about stories and relationships. <laughs> At least it is to me, because that's even in my small little town where there was countless little barbecue joints. The top five or six, the largest ones, 
they all knew each other. They all talked to each other. They all had relationships. Mm-hmm. They all worked together. Somebody was short wood. Somebody was short brisket. Right. Somebody was short people. They shifted stuff around. Mm. They made it happen. Yeah. They weren't going to allow their competition to go down. Craziest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> but everybody had their clientele, and nobody's clientele crossed over. It was the same way at the grocery stores at that time, which is why I think this mentality worked in Taylor at that time. Yeah. There was 15 grocery stores in a three-block radius of downtown. They're all there mm. to service clans and extended clans from people who have migrated there and had been there, you know, maybe going on their second or third generation. Right. They were servicing them. And then they wound up servicing the migrant groups. But when that collapsed, there was no more, you know, strong relational or familial ties. Everybody's going for the cheapest dollar. Sure. And so the, what was established and worked before doesn't, doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Well, that's great. I think that that's a perfect uh, stopping point for part one. We'll be right back uh, after a word from our sponsors from Duke's Premium Meats, Zero Point Organics, and uh, Bernie Brand Hot Sauce. We'll be right back. The Cost of Goods Told podcast is made possible by the following sponsors. Chriswell Culinary aims to create a new standard of unique, affordable hot sauces that satisfies the more developed cravings of today. Bernie Brand Texas-style hot sauce is a boldly layered sauce with density and personality to proudly represent Texas. Go to BernieBrand.com to find a retailer near you. That's Bernie, B-O-E-R-N-E, Brand.com. Zero Point Organics grows and supplies microgreens for over 30 major restaurants in the Houston area. Consistently perfect quality in flavor and appearance, their microgreens will be the best you or your customers have ever had every single time. Go to zero, Z-E-R-O, dash pointorganics.com. Duke's Premium Meats Home Delivery is committed to providing you with the best quality meat delivered right to your door. Offering certified Angus beef, grass-fed beef, Wagyu, and many more premium options, nobody beats Duke's Meats. Make sure to check out all that Duke has to offer at dukespremiummeats.com. How difficult is it? I'm going to jump right into the question without doing an That's intro. Okay. Yeah. How difficult is it? What challenges do you have or successes in maintaining and a retention for labor in a small town like Taylor? Um, it's the same challenges that I've talked to everybody I've talked to around the world. I don't care where we are. If we're domestic, if we're in the Northeast Coast, we're on the West Coast, we're heartland. We're Europe, we're Asia, we're Australia. They all seem to have the same problems. Yeah. This seems to be a generational thing, not a regional thing, not a demographic thing. Really? Not a demographic in the terms of um, any sort of race, religion, sex. That doesn't apply. What it seems to apply is age (laughs) and how people are raised and where they're raised. What they're exposed to in terms of responsibility long term. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, How much challenge they've had to face in their youth. All seems to roll into how well they're going to do in performing with us because right. our task is not easy. If you come in just looking to become famous because this is something you've seen on TV, right. you're going right. to be dead in your DOA in two weeks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you come in thinking this is what my career life journey is about, you're dead in two weeks. Yeah. Physically and emotionally, right? I mean, that's the same way it was when I was in sports, right? If, if, if a jock sniff came in, they, <laughs> they wanted, because they, their expectations were to hang around the players all the time. Their workload, their responsibilities never were, were covered. Right. Ever. Ever. They didn't last long. People are overly exuberant about coming to work, about doing the, I am, I, red flags all over the place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If they're not somewhat apprehensive about the challenges that are involved, including time, effort, 
physical demands, if those aren't things that they express to me, then I'm concerned that they're not concerned about those sort of things. Yeah. Then it tells me they don't really know. Well, there's got to be also a huge generational gap coming from where you came from, right? Your dad's like, hey, you're eight, you're going to work, yeah. right? And these kids <laughs> show up at 19 having watched Chef and Chopped and Guy Fieri going, well, that, man, I can get on TV and I can be superstar. That, How about I start over here? Right? That's the whole part of it is now we're so much about instant gratification, yeah. sure. right? Because we, we're on, the, on our phones. I mean, the entire world is in yeah. the palm of your hand, <laughs> yeah. right? Oh, I know how to do brisket. I'll YouTube it, right? Um, it's so like changing the starter in my Ford. Yeah. <laughs> well, so well, look, yeah, there, and there's no better. There's no. I mean, I'll say better. There's no better or worse reinforcement than Amazon. Look, I'm an. I love Amazon. <laughs> yeah, I'm an no. Amazon Prime <laughs> member, and I've been using Amazon for a year and a half, and I can hit a button and I get it in two days. I had to go stand in an academy in the line at Christmas time to finish up a couple of things that I couldn't get, you know, quickly mm-hmm. uh, online. And I was fucking miserable. Like, I'm there 45 minutes in line texting my wife, still instant gratification, that, saying, yeah. I'll never <laughs> do this again, ever. <laughs> Would you take this gift at your birthday? Because I'm thinking about just leaving it. <laughs> Amazon has spoiled me, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so you get a coupon well, for a hug this that, Christmas. That's not just, you know, it's people see and watch television, right? They see this famous chef Mm -hmm. or they look at Wayne. Okay, they go, oh, here's a superstar and he's got this lineage. And They they inherited it and he's a star already, right? They don't (laughs) know the work that he put in. Of course. Scrubbing the walls at age, how old were you when that corner that wall? (laughs) Eight. eight. If you go into a restaurant, you look at the the wall, there's one corner of the wall that's lighter color (laughs) than the rest of it. He did that when he was age eight, right? So that, that is what people lack nowadays. People don't want to come in here. They want to learn, yep. right? Mm-hmm. But they're not willing to put the time. Sure. You know, they look at me and they go, oh, you know, wow, you make it look easier. How, how come you can trim a brisket in less than two minutes? Mm-hmm. Especially the way I trim a brisket. Right. Or how can you make it this? Or how can you cook this dish? Because yep. I've been doing it for decades. Mm-hmm. You know, every day. So it may look easy, but it's taken decades to get where I am. So can you elaborate, Ara, coming from, I'm, I'm not separating the chef world from the barbecue world, but from, from kind of your background. You should. Well, they're different. They're so, they're, so they're, different. They're, they're, it's as night and day different as two different sports, as okay. football and basketball. They're both professional sports. They work off the same general premises, mm-hmm. but they are different entities in and of themselves. I mean, oh, yeah. what, what Ara does, I, I couldn't even imagine doing. No, that's absolutely <laughs> that's the truth. And I don't ever claim to be a chef, ever. That's not what I am. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just not what I am. Chef right? Wayne, Chef Yeah, yeah, yeah. That doesn't go over well with me, man. It's like, you, know, you got to lose the chef thing because I, I, I can't live up to those expectations. And I don't want to. He can. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And he's proven that over decades of time. So, I mean, to make that jump, it's difficult for people in, in the chef world, in the fine dining world, to make the leap, yes, they don't succeed generally. Right, that's a low succession rate. Hmm. I mean, it, it's not as low as people entering the market for the first time. You know, <laughs> not ninety five percent of them are failing, right, right. but right. A, a, an extremely large number are. Right, yeah, they just can't get over the whole length of the process. Sure, they want to change everything. They want to put their stamp on everything. They can't rely on the simplicity of the of the, of the formulation of the process right. of the equipment. To let that happen, and you work the nuances that make, 
It's like learning how to sail. Experienced sailors know all the, the nuance of trimming. Right. Right? They can beat an inexperienced sailor every time, even though fundamentally they know the same shit. <laughs> it, is that, it is that way. Yeah, it, right. it is very different. You have to change... I mean, for me, it's easy because, again, I have this love for food, any kind of food. Mm-hmm. But barbecue was came naturally to me, bec- and, and it wasn't like I didn't go work for Wayne or anybody else to learn barbecue. Right. It's because I know the science behind cooking. <laughs> but I didn't try to make barbecue into what I am, right? I didn't try to change it into, oh, well, I can do it better. There is no way to cook a brisket faster. It just takes time if you want the meat to be tender. Mm-hmm. And if you want it to have the right flavor, you want it to be juicy, it takes time. Right. I, I mean, I give the example. How many times do people ask you, well, how long does it take you to smoke a brisket? <laughs> Until it's done. Until, Until it's, done. it's done. They hate the answer, but yeah. it's like, I can't. What do you want me to tell you? Right. Yeah. You how long did it take you to raise your child? <laughs> yeah. They're 25, they're still at home. How long does it take you to raise your yeah, child? Right. right. It's, and that's what chefs have a difficult time with because okay, yeah. chefs are used to a recipe, a technique right. of whether it's braising or whether it's even sous vide. Like mm-hmm. my biggest gripe with chefs of today is they lack the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. They lack how they don't, I mean, ask them what the five mother sauces are. If they can name it, how many times have they made it? Right. They haven't made it day in and day out. I started apprenticing in the kitchen. I didn't go to culinary school at age 12. I mean, for days and weeks and months, all I did was peel carrots and potatoes and wash dishes, mm-hmm. turning art- artichokes, cases at a time. To this day, it's actually a very zen thing to do to one of my favorite things to this day, I know it sounds masochistic to a certain level, is sit down and do cases of artichoke, turning artichoke cards. You know, you've done it. You know, how it's it's a bitch. <laughs> it, it is a bitch, and, but it's you get into this rhythm. It's the same thing with trimming brisket. You know, I take it as I, that's where I bring my fine dining background into it. That I'll use a very specific type of knife to trim my brisket. Mm-hmm. Less, most chefs have most. Barbecue guys who trim briskets, they have this tennis elbow, right? They, they get this pain in their elbow. I know quite a few friends who oh, have tennis it. Elbows. Tennis, tennis elbows. Tennis elbow. Yeah. I don't have it. It's because of the <laughs> techniques of butchering whole animals being in the fine dining. But barbecue is a complete... And, and the camaraderie. I mean, the fact that I'm sitting down here <laughs> with Wayne and right. how he... You know, I mean, when I first started... I was a nobody, and he took the time being who he is, talking to somebody who was a nobody in the barbecue industry, who, especially coming from the chef side, who were, let's put it this way, we're not, we don't have the best reputations as chefs. You know, they're ordinary, they're egocentric. Introverts. Introverts, and most of the time, pricks, you know. So the barbecue community has been so welcoming of me as a chef coming into it that Mm – you would not get that from a barbecue guy going into fine dining. It, it's just yeah. impossible. Right. Yeah. But the, the, the curse of, of having a barbecue menu. So, like, if you're building up a restaurant and yeah. you are working with a team and one of the guys is just absolutely fucking killing it on the risotto station. Yeah. Wonderful. It's great. You're getting known for it. You know, people are coming in, ordering the shit out of it. All of a sudden, that guy 
leaves, you adjust your menu. You say, you know what? We're not doing risotto right now. Hey, servers, push the fish, push the beef station, something like that. You can't that. do that in barbecue. You can't. And so it's like you not only came back to barbecue, but you came back to a lineage where it's like you not only have to do barbecue and as the prices of you know brisket go up and as all these things you have to stay with that but you also have to maintain that and then you have guys who come underneath you who have to work these pits and do things or a a a group of people that have to represent you just as much on a day-to-day basis on a night-to-night basis where it is it's got to match every single time if my risotto guy is different i'll just throw in a different spice into it we're going to do a wild mushroom risotto oh we're going to do a scallop risotto something like that so that i can throw a curveball to my guests so that if it isn't the same i'm okay right but that's not true to barbecue and that is one of the things that i look at you know as we start to look at the second generation of pitmasters. you know you guys have earned your chops you guys are here and you're going you know, what's happening, you know, and we talked about Brett kind of off of, you know, off mic and so forth, but he's gone and done his thing. You've got to substitute that a guy who comes in and works hard and does it the right way and things. And it's and and in my discovery of, of barbecue and how you guys do everything over the past year, it's been one of those where it's like, holy shit, I, I always took it for granted that I could change up my menu. I could even change up the name of my goddamn restaurant if I wanted to, to reflect my staff or, or whatever troubles I was having to, to substitute that. But you guys come in every day and it's like, you've got to, you can't not do brisket, right. even if your guy sucks at fucking brisket or doesn't, you know, show, or up. Really, or doesn't yeah. show up. You know, well, you know so what happens? <laughs> here, here's the difference between the barbecue world and the regular world with chefs. Mm-hmm. We train our staff to do things based on what we do in-house. Him with his lineage that he learned and me with what I've created here. We've trained them. So, like, I recently lost a person who I trained for the last year and a half. I have somebody else I'm training right now. He does the same thing with his staff. He trains them. But guess what? When we lose somebody... You know who does the smoking and the cleaning and all of that? The people who care the most. That's right. Yeah. At the end of the day, no one's going to care or do as good of a job as you are. Mm-hmm. No one will. I don't disagree. Yeah. Yes. So, but a team of people can match what you do. Yeah. Okay. A team, as, a matter, as a matter of fact, a team of people can exceed what you do. Yeah. But it takes a team. Easily exceed. But yes, yeah. it's a team. It's never going to be an individual unless somebody just comes in who's just a savant. Right. I mean, who just has all of these skills necessary and has no other drive in life other than to (laughs) absolutely be the best at this. Right. And they can. But where are you going to find them? Right. Right. You can't hold out hope that you're going to find them ever. So you you resign yourself to a team environment. That's what has to happen. And train the team well. Get them all to care or have them all caring before they come in. Train them well. And you can produce amazing things because whether it's a corporate environment or a kitchen environment, you're always best served if you surround yourself with people who are more talented than you. Always. Always. Yeah. I, don't care. I don't care what the situation is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there'll be competition. Sometimes that's good competition. Yeah. I'm, I don't have that ego. You're better than me. Good. Then I trained you well. You had the skill set necessary and all everything necessary to, to do well, mm-hmm. and now you're doing it every day. You better be better than me. I want you to be better than me. I honestly do. Then I can do what only I can do in this business, and that's grow it. Yeah. If you can do this, I'm golden. We're golden. You're golden. Yeah. 
our guests, most of all, are golden because they don't see a difference. Mm. Speaking of golden, speaking of growing the business, I noticed that you guys and a few other well-known pitmasters, right, with, with thriving businesses are also doing online ordering or shipping, right? <laughs> There's a company you're using, Gold Belly. <laughs> Yeah. So was the employment of Gold Belly or the addition of that into your, your day-to-day business, was that, was that to add stability to your day-in and day-out business? Is it a good move? Is it a bad move? Would you do it again? I mean, it's obviously something that is something your father would have never thought of or your grandfather. Well, actually, he, they did do it for a while, but they had to have a USDA inspector, and they didn't have a USDA inspector, so they just stopped doing it. Okay. Um, but they had considered doing that. That was something even then. Back in the 90s, mid-90s, they were thinking wow. about. This is, at, you know, commercial inv- internet is just coming online. You can thank Al Gore for that. <laughs> that was a joke. And the, and the uh, climate, but, and, and but, the climate but, too. But, 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 but in all honesty, <laughs> what I see in today's environment, what I see from the generation, my daughter's generation, is they'll pay $5 for a stick of gum if somebody will to favor if they'll go down to the, the CVS two blocks away to pick it up for them and bring to them. You're right. They will, to have everything delivered, have everything on demand, whether it's Amazon or food, it doesn't really matter. They're much more open to that sort of thing. Not only are they open to that, but they don't want to do the labor. So things like Blue Apron are struggling because you still have to put the the meal together. It's all pre-portioned. It all comes to you bought. You don't have to go to the grocery store. All that's there. It still only takes 30 minutes, but people don't want to go through that effort. It's the craziest stuff, but I swear to God, they don't want to do it. But if you send them a full meal, ready to go, they'll pay premium price for it mm-hmm. so that they don't have to do it. Wow. So for us, you know, it started out as whole cuts. Yes, there's some stability. We can cook more. You know, if yep. anything that, you know, if we have whole cuts left over, then we can cool them down quickly, freeze them, and use them as part of our shipping inventory. That truly helps us stay open later. Yep. Um, but I think... Ultimately, it's how the business is going to develop. Just like the business developed from walk-up traffic in an alleyway, servicing railroad engineers and farmers, <laughs> and people coming out of the grocery store, we have to find a new way to get to people. Because yeah. what you can see clearly is that in-house dining is decreasing. And mid-range, especially table service, is dying. So the Applebee's and the Chili's of the world yeah. are really, really struggling. And there's shrinking labor costs everywhere they can. Quick service is doing the same thing. McDonald's is automating cooking now as well as ordering. Right. Well, I didn't know cooking. So, mm-hmm. so, now what, so what you ultimately have in the restaurant industry is you're going to have skeleton staff servicing stuff out. People mm-hmm. aren't willing to go. So if you're not willing to go to them, there's a part of the market that you're willing to lose. And quite honestly, we can't afford to lose Right. Them. Mm-hmm. So if the future really means going to someone's house all the time or making sure that it gets to someone's house, then that's what we're going to do. And so right now we're looking at all ways to make that happen because one of those ways, I think, is going to be a viable future. It's just which one. And, you know, based on what I read, what I saw, you're shipping internationally, correct? Well, we're shipping international as long as FedEx gets their... their (laughs) Well, they were doing some experimental stuff um, this fall with Canada. And I don't know how the new trade deal works into this. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it has some effect. But FedEx was working with packaged goods, packaged foods, crossing the border so that Canadians could order it. And if that works out, I mean, that's a whole other market. And believe it or not, we have a decent 
Canadian clientele. I, I would never have guessed any of this had I not put up a map. You know, yeah. a, a U.S. 50-state map, or really a North American map, and a world map to see where people are coming from. Yeah. It's only then that you start paying attention when people say that they came from someplace that you sure. realize it reinforces, oh, yeah, I talked to that person. I see them up here. It's just, it blows your mind, really. But you, you realize that the, it, at the end of the day, maybe not in my lifetime, but certainly in the next generation's lifetime, there's no regional markets anymore. Everything's a world market. Mm-hmm. And do you use local delivery, too? No, we don't use anything like DoorDash. Or, okay. But, and the reason I have found, we, they decided they were going to include us in, in Taylor because they were trying to build yeah. business. And we, those and, we, and we got a couple of orders <laughs> that didn't come out right, and people call and complain. It's like, we don't even, we're not a part of DoorDash. What are you talking about? Right. You know? And they're like, well, we ordered And I look online, sure enough. We're all, I'm like, no. Yeah, that's stole, No, that's not going to work. Stole your menu. And yeah, that's not going to work. So, you know, we, we're delivering for anybody within, say, the greater Austin area, if you have an order of $200 or more, we'll take it. Plus delivery, a dollar yeah. a mile one way or 50 cents a mile round okay. trip. Right. If, if, you know, if you want to do that, yeah, I'll do it. And so we're doing a lot more of that. Wow. Believe it or not, I just did it because there was a couple of clients we had that I didn't want to just cut off saying, no, we're not going to deliver anymore. And now it's just... They're like, okay. It's growing. People are like, yeah, we'll do that. Wow. I'm like, are you kidding me? Has it subsidized a generous portion of maybe like the catering? Because catering yeah, can be su- super labor intensive. Yeah, we substituted one straight up one for one. And right now, okay. we're probably about 75% of what our catering was at its peak. And at a fraction of the labor cost and time invested. Right. That to me is golden. If I don't have to, that, mo- that many more staff that I'm, that I'm scheduling and working with, and that many more caterings that I'm doing. Because at, at a minimum, I'm putting five hours into a catering. Right. Minimum. <laughs> yeah. That's, right. that's right. minimum. And that, that's, yeah. just loading, that's just loading, loading up, driving, load in, serve, load out, come back, clean up, put up, <laughs> put away. That's not even including Cook time, cooking. nothing. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it, just, it, it just became, now if we do caterings, it's just a drop off. And if they really want more service, there's a ton of event companies in Austin who rent yeah. out equipment, people, Mm-hmm. You know, servers, bartenders, valet, huh. they, they do it all. And they have every kind of equipment imaginable. And they mm-hmm. just do like us and charge per, per, per person. Huh. So we just, it, we partner uh, with them. Yeah. That's cool. Well, I think it's awesome too, because I've seen Ara trim a brisket and he's like, this is going to become beef jerky. This is going to become this. This is going to be that. And it's taking all of that stuff. That, like it's like, you're already doing the labor, but turning it into dollars and cents outside of your four That's because Ara's smart. Yeah, yeah right. Absolutely. Dude, <laughs> you know how many people in our industry just take the trim and throw it away? Mm. Right. I'm sure you've talked to a few. Right. Maybe more than a few. We probably know a handful. <laughs> but see, this is, again, this is, I, there's no knock on them. They no. have to learn the, the hard way sometimes that you can't waste anything, right? Our right? clearly knows. Our comes from the school of waste not, want not. We're going to use everything. This is the way restaurants remain pro- yeah. profitable. Mm-hmm. And I think for us, the way we got started was this is how a, a business such as a grocery with a meat market stays profitable. We cook some of this stuff. Right. Yeah. Some of it dry. We make jerky. Some we make sausage, and we do a number of things with. But ultimately, we don't. This none of the, none of this goes to waste. Right. All right. So you're five years in, and your location, which is out here in, in Richmond, Texas, right? You're surrounded by suburbs. I mean, yeah. there's neighborhood after neighborhood after neighborhood. Unlike a small town like Taylor, right? Not that they're not surrounded too, but yeah. 
do you guys use a delivery service or do you, I know you do catering, I, but do you I started with Uber and I'm really it, the amount of headache that I have from it compared to what revenue it brings in. Yeah. It's really not worth it. It's not because number one, the percentage that they charge. Yeah. Yeah. Number two, the callbacks and the issues and with barbecue, it's not like a regular restaurant. Mm -hmm. You know, when you run out of something, you're out. And then you have to 86 it. No longer available on Uber. And if you don't do, your staff doesn't pay attention in time. Order yeah. pops on. Right. Your SOL. Now you got to try and get a hold of the person. Now you just upset a guest who normally would. It does have a convenience. I've been trying it out for the last few months to see how it works out. I've left it on so far. But it, the revenue that it brings in, it's really not worth it. So for us, this, it's not. It's now, nominal at this point. You're like, oh, hey, yeah. I don't know, for I don't me, know why for I'm me, worried with yeah. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I looked at it very similar to, to Groupon. Yeah. You know, because one way or another, you're discounting your food about the same amount. And you're driving traffic one way or you're driving sales, I mm -hmm. should say, one way or yeah. another. But it seemed to be that the sales we were driving were people who only participated when those discounts were available. Gotcha. And so it didn't really make sense for us to do that because mm -hmm. if they're not going to be repeat at full retail, right. then it doesn't really do us any good because sure. now yeah. we're just marketing to people who are zero margin individuals. Right. Mm -hmm. How does that help us? If they're, especially if they're not out preaching for us. Right. It's so important for people to come in and have that experience so that... We, we can sort of create disciples, and not way. not to not to not to Aaron knows that oh, not yeah. to defend <laughs> those people, right? They they're paying for a service, but what they don't understand is, and so this is what Aaron said: you're well into double digits with Uber Eats or DoorDash or whoever oh, it is. Yeah, so totally, even if you're not discounting the food, you're discounting because you're having to give a portion of those sales away. It actually costs us money. It's thirty percent, isn't it? Yeah. Close right, to 30? because I mean our margins are tight. Right, right. I mean, so if you're a good op yeah, if you're a good operator, you're. In the rest, in general restaurant business, you're running a twenty percent profit margin, right? The average restaurant runs ten to thirteen. Right. Average successful restaurant, yeah. right? <laughs> now you're giving away thirty percent to this delivery service. It's costing you twenty yeah. percent out of pocket for every order that goes of out. Of course. Yeah. And I don't know how they sell it. I know a couple of guys who've worked for those companies, right? And, and they've presented different models. But my point still goes back to the independent business owner, not the buyer, mm -hmm. who yeah. could care less what you're paying. He's yeah, just right. like, I just want my brisket. And right. you're like, yeah, but I just gave 30% away, and I made 1%, and you're not coming back. Right? So forget sure. I'm out. And like, they're going to complain like about rent. it. Yeah. <laughs> Again. Yeah. Is it not? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. I swear to God, it quit, is because quit, quit because the profit pump. margin doesn't go to you; it goes to the the landlord. Totally, yeah, yeah. And if, and the moment you're profitable and the moment you're successful, your rent goes up. Right. So you're chasing the the mechanical rabbit forever. <laughs> yeah. You never get ahead. Yeah. You're, you're run always out of breath. working. You're yeah. always working for somebody else, no matter that. Technically, you're working for yourself. Sure. Sure. There's a better model. There's a better model somewhere. I mean, you look at the John Brothertons of, the, of you know, the barbecue industry who's worked their asses off, who's made a name for himself, who said, you know what? I'm not doing delivery service anymore. Yeah. I've worked 14 hours just on that brisket yeah. alone. And by the time it got to the customer, it was shit. And I had to hear about it online mm -hmm. because I gave my product to someone else to handle. I, I respect that a thousand percent, especially as a business owner as well, but not in barbecue. But, man, I just handed my baby over to somebody. I slapped it around. When it came <laughs> back, it was no good. Right? So, yeah. 
I, I, I don't know if I owned a restaurant and I talked to hundreds of restaurant owners. I'm just not sure I could do it. Yeah, you know? I'll tell you, being in this business, not just barbecue business, you have to develop thick skin. You, it's because everybody is a critic. So much more in barbecue than any other restaurant industry being a chef or having an Italian restaurant because we are in Texas. Everybody. It's it's, it's a Texas thing. Hmm. Yeah. Everybody does barbecue in their backyard. Exactly right. Yeah. And everybody has the best brisket, the best pulled pork or the best pork ribs that their entire family loves. And they all say, oh, I should open up a barbecue restaurant. I go, please go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Open one up here in my backyard. Why don't you? I'll tell you what. Why don't you go open up a mile away from me? And then we'll talk in six months. Yeah. You know, go, go take a mortgage out on your house, <laughs> build a restaurant, hire the staff in reasonable wages that you, they can afford to support their families. Mm-hmm. And I'll come to your restaurant and I'll write a shitty review about it because I think it had not enough salt right. or not enough pepper or it had too much. Or wasn't authentic enough. Or it wasn't authentic <laughs> enough. You know. <laughs> Wayne is literally grinning from ear yeah. to ear. He's just but soaking it in because he knows. He's heard it all. And that's why when I started doing barbecue, I wanted to make sure, you know, I want to taste it. Everybody's supposed to have good barbecue and taste it. Okay. And so I could model my food after that. I'm not here to reinvent the week. Now, don't get me wrong. I do some crazy-ass shit in my restaurant <laughs> as a special, but, right. like, perfect example. I'll do smoked octopus every other week here. Mm-hmm. It has never made it to the hour mark. It always sells out in less than 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. Sells out completely. It's amazing. It's okay? amazing. It's so dumb. But could I do it every day and sell it every day? Absolutely not. It would right. be stupid. Right. Right? But... I have all my staples of everything that everybody else does in barbecue. And that's right. where I get to be creative and have fun with my every other week doing that or doing my lamb chops every week. You know, I mean, let's forget about the fact that I, the, the guy sitting across from me here is a dear <laughs> friend. But before we were friends, I consider his barbecue to be the best I've had, the most consistent I've had. Mm-hmm. Not just the food, but the story behind it because believe it or not in my opinion having been in the food business for such a long time food is not the most the quality of your food and how good it is it is really not the most important part of what it is mm-hmm. it is the story it is that connection that you make we make you we make with our guests who walk through the door mm-hmm. that we talk to when you have a choice of going to 10 other barbecue places, why would you go to Wayne's restaurant, Louis Miro's barbecue? It's because of him. Right. Because of his father, because of what it stands for. It, it, is, an in, it, it, it is a cathedral, <laughs> you know, that has been there for over 70 years, mm-hmm. right? And it is that old cathedral that you'll go into Europe that has been there for over a thousand years, right? That's what people identify with, is that story, that mm-hmm. recognition, and how special we make them feel when they walk through the doors. Mm-hmm. So the biggest advice I can always give anybody who's coming into the restaurant business or wants to do barbecue, is never about what you want. Yes, it's so nev- <laughs> it is never about what you want to do and what you want. 
Okay. It's about what's going to sell and what people are willing to pay for it. Right. right. Sure. So when okay. you were... Oh, oh I'm sorry. Oh, okay. So when you were, say, experiencing Wayne's Barbecue for the first time, I think of chefs or... I'll, I'll just use myself as an example. I'm pretty good at a variety of different cuisines. I'm pretty good at doing different things. I've never honed my craft like a Japanese knife maker. If a guy goes into making Japanese knives, that's all he makes. He doesn't fuck around with forks. He doesn't fuck around with spoons. He does knives and he perfects that damn thing. If you're making a samurai sword, that's all you're doing. So when you're approaching it, you're coming from the chef world and you're like, hey, I'm gonna open up a barbecue restaurant. And you look across and these guys have been honing one craft for so long. How, I mean, like, how did you how did you approach that? Like, you so know, because you can I, understand yeah, the science I, yeah, of making a yeah. knife, but to do it, <laughs> I can taste anything, anything, and I can replicate it, right? Because over the years of cooking and being all over the world, you know, you 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 learn things, mm-hmm. right? It's <laughs> that rule of thumb of doing something for a thousand times, you become good at it, right? right? Uh, that's why I'm able to cut that time to very short amount, but. Um, what, what amazed me eating at his restaurant, and, and I tell him this all the time, I go, reason my beef ribs are good is because of him. <laughs> because I think he makes the best beef ribs. So it's, and if mine can be half as good as his is, <laughs> I've done a pretty damn good job. Right. Okay. Because I was amazed because I, you know, beef ribs, it's a simple thing. You know, it's a, it's a beef rib. You stick it in the smoker. It's got salt and pepper on it, but it's not that simple. It's the same thing with barbecue. It is very simple, but very difficult to do correctly. That's like one of the hardest things I've ever had to cook styles of cooking was sushi. It's truly the one of the most difficult things to make correctly, right? Same thing with barbecue. I think it's very difficult to do correctly, not just correctly, to make the food to come out right. You know, you're dealing with brisket, a meat that is very tough. It's got very tight fibers. To make it to come out tender, that maintains that juice. And when you cut it, it's got just the right amount of salt, just the right amount of pepper, evenly distributed between the point to the flat. It is an art form. It is. It's nothing I can write down a recipe and tell you replicate it. Mm-hmm. Unless you come and sit down and watch me do it for 21 hours a day. Okay, seven days a week, 52 weeks out of the year, for a few years, then you're going to learn the touch and feel, right? right? Yeah, it's very nuanced. Yeah. It's a science. Well, it is. I mean, okay, if you think about when I was growing up, not only were there just this endless number of, of places cooking meats, smoking meats, they were everywhere, on every corner, everywhere, doing everything. Even the people that worked for you within an establishment on the same equipment using the same meat sourcing <laughs> would come out with vastly different products. Sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was, the, that was the kick on the industry for the longest time, the inconsistency, not only between individuals, between quality during time of day. So, I mean, it, it's just as he was saying that, you know, it's not easy for everybody to replicate this whole thing it really takes a lot of time and effort right. to, to replicate what you see somebody else doing just to try to mimic their outcome and their output. And not everybody can do that. That's the one thing I don't think 
that everybody is capable of doing mm-hmm. for whatever reason. They're capable of learning the skills, but they're not capable of understanding all the nuance because they may have prejudices or, or perceptions that differ and they can't, they just don't see the world it's in the same a, way. It's not a widget, right? You can't treat yeah. it the same. <laughs> you know, it's that, it's, that, it's that whole gold blue dress thing from a few years back on the <laughs> yeah. internet. Right? <laughs> yeah, what color? No, yeah. I swear to God, it's that way. Yeah. People actually believed what they were seeing without taking into consideration shadow, inversion, <laughs> things of that nature. It, but what they see is what they see, and they're reporting on that. that is, that's not an objective truth. That's a perceptive truth, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And we have to try to work on objective truths. So we have to fight through the perceptions and the biases that people bring with them, which is why I, don't, I generally don't like to hire people who've had previous commercial barbecue experience because they inevitably, it's, it's just human nature. They They're going to bring it. that yeah. with them they because they've already built in muscle memory and understanding to that system. So they're just trying to apply it, thinking, well, it should be similar. Yeah. And it's, it, not, that's, it's not. That's what I learned in fine dining and in the restaurant business of uh, being a chef is one of my least favorite things to do is to hire somebody out of culinary school because they think they're a chef. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. And it's the same thing with barbecue. You know, people ask me, oh, is that, what's the secret? Is that a secret? Can you tell me? I go, I, I have zero secrets when it comes to barbecue <laughs> or food in general. Do you want to learn how I do my briskets? Come spend time. I have an open kitchen policy. Right. I don't mind teaching people because they're not going to be able to replicate what you do because mm-hmm. my touch is different than your touch. I can teach you over time, but it's going to be close. It's, over time, you're going to be able to replicate what I do. Right. But me just giving away my recipe or how, what I put in it or how many hours, it's a different story. You know, I trim briskets every day. You trim briskets every day. You see it day in and day out. There's no two pieces of meats that are exactly the same. It's right. impossible. It's just not a widget. It's, just it's not. A- right? And it's not going to react the same in a smoker. I don't care what kind of smoker you're using. Sure. Whether you're using a vault like what I use or mm-hmm. an offset or an old school brick. You know, here's, here's where the difference comes in. You give... I guarantee you, you give Wayne a, bu- a stack of bricks, tell him, go build yourself something to smoke a piece of meat, it'll come out perfect. Okay? We're just a st- He'll build something out of it for you to smoke. Sure. You do the same thing with me, I'll figure it out, right? <laughs> because we, we understand how the meat reacts to the smoke with the fire, why it does what it does, and... We understand the, uh, the final outcome that we want, we're trying to achieve, and we know how to get there. It, doesn't, it has nothing to do with whether I'm using that smoker or another smoker. Mm-hmm. You know, once you learn how the air flows and the smoke and the heat. Yeah. But where's the sustainability in that? For, so, you know, because we've got a new generation of guys who've, who've popped up. You can, you know, talk about the Blood Brothers. You can even talk about yourself and Corkscrew, guys who are even Brett, you know, who's in year, was it? One, one year. He well, just celebrated in his, one In his year. own place, yes. In his yeah. own place. But, yeah. you know, now, now there's additional stresses. There's additional things that come from it. What do you see as the sustainability? You know, like what, you know, you know, Where do you see it going? I'm not trying to put this in a negative spin or anything like that, but it is something that I am concerned about. For I think the industry has, in, in, in general, in restaurants, has a 95% failure rate. Right. 
And reason behind it is what we talked about. Why has Louis Mueller been around for over 70 years is because it's been fortunate enough to have people who have operated it who know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really, at the end of the day, it is a business that needs to make money. It needs to also be uh, very modular that you can... Reason why Louis Mueller's is what it is today and has had still around today is because of Wayne, because he's been able to adjust and take it to the next level. Otherwise, it wouldn't be here today. Right? Right? Yeah, I think it would certainly be on a decline. I mean, yeah. I, what, I, what I noticed about the old school places um, starting the late 2000s going into the teens was if there was not an, a revision or an adaptation to the changes that are happening in the culinary world, um, it's not that your quality has changed at all. It's that the quality of the industry around you that has changed. And if, if you're not progressing and moving forward, you might as well be going backwards because standing still, being static, right. is just as bad. Mm -hmm. Everybody's still passing you by because yeah. they're all still working on a better mousetrap. Yeah. Right. right? I mean, and, and so you're constantly competing with that. And I'll, I'll tell you that it's, in a way it's a young man's game because there's a lot of energy and enthusiasm that comes about from that. Not, I mean, when you've been in the grind 20 years, 30 years, it's tough to be enthusiastic about any change. You know, you're looking for more stability, not chaos right right you're younger chaos works well until you find that niche that you're looking for and then and then you settle into that yeah it's kind of like business is, is a good business is like a good marriage it really is i mean you have to you have to understand where the balance lies it can never be one side it can't be all about the food and not about the service or right. all about you know measuring costs i mean you have to pay equal attention to all these things just like you would in a marriage. Yeah. Your own needs, your partner's needs, the well-being of your children, all of these things all have to are part of the soup, right? They're all baked in. So, and they're all taken into consideration in order to have a healthy, healthy and happy family. Well, the same thing goes with the business. You, have to, you can't just ignore one portion of this. Even if it is mundane and boring and just <laughs> you hate to do it, it's still an integral part of what you do. So right. all of those components, as distasteful as some of them can be, they are just as important as the others. So you, you really have to incorporate them all. And the people who incorporate them the best are the ones who sure. who really not only, not only survive, but can thrive. I'm so glad you brought up that change, that ability to survive, that evolution of the business. Because I have a very objective question, but it's a subjective answer. But you'll, you'll draw from your experience. You know, Champ Burger in downtown Houston opened in 1963. They've been serving hamburgers since that day. Their following is, you know, double meat, double cheese, and they have a great following. I mean, they, they're an institution, right? But, you know, with, with the influx of a younger generation, which we brought up, into right. their neighborhood and the thriving downtown rebuilding, they're bringing in, you know, meat alternatives, Impossible <laughs> Burger, which they can't keep in stock because that's what people are buying. And, and here, that's evolving into, and Jackrabbit or whatever, Jack, whatever the hell that is, it's been around for years, it's a vegetarian option. And now, so there's Impossible Burger. And now, there's, there's all these plant-based, plant-based. Manly Burger. Proteins yeah, coming out, which, <laughs> which is an oxymoron. I mean, how's it, how do you have a plant-based meat option? I don't know. But, but Dunkin' Donuts is doing it, right? And all, all the big chains are bringing in meatless 
whatever. You see a place for that? What do you think about that? In my world, no. I mean, no, not in the barbecue world. Yeah. Because if you don't have fat, you don't have... Fat is you flavor. Can't, you can't... Well, you, it's the only way to keep the meat from becoming a brick. Yeah. I mean, if, yep. it, right. So you, you have it... Right. You become jerky or not. So we <laughs> need fatty meat. And if yep. there's not that fat available, then you can't really do what we do. You can grill. Yeah. I mean, there, there can be meat substitutes that are available in those kind of forms. Of sure. Stuff, but I don't, to do what we do, no. Nah. I mean, no. it's, it's, it is what it is. I mean, I, I heard you mention in another podcast, you know, if AOC has her, world, has her wishes, right, <laughs> all cows will go away and they'll just be humans farting around. But the same, you know, there's got to be, look, I love barbecue and I love burgers and I'm not going away from it. But there, there's a squeaky wheel that's getting in touch with the right people yeah. and they're starting to create these alternatives I don't. I still haven't had one of those burgers because I refuse to. I just don't. I don't. Well, like here's beets. the thing. I've like had them. I've know? had them. And let me. As a chef, for me personally, right? I look at it as, if you want meat, eat meat. If you want vegetables, hundred percent vegetables. Once you start manipulating ingredients and making something into something else. <laughs> I think you're heading down a down a very dangerous road. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a Faustian deal. Yeah. yeah, because what you're doing is not natural. Yeah, yeah. of course. Um, yeah, I mean we found that out with a lot of preservatives, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just think this is another this is just another tributary off of that main that main artery, don't you? I, I, take it I, take it from the 1970s and 60s and 70s when everybody was using asbestos for insulation in, insulation, yeah. right? <laughs> Oh, it's great. It's fire retardant. It's cheaper. It's <laughs> causes brain cancer. No worries. Yeah. Yeah. No worries. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no worries. yeah. No, it's not I, for 30 five, years. Yeah. 30 years later. Don't worry. Yeah. I agree 100%. So my food science background says everything about that product is wrong, right? I would much rather sit down and eat a bowl of brisket grease than, than <laughs> eat something that's filled with TVP and preservatives and color. You got to wonder, and, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah. And um, it makes me wonder, too. What's really going on in a vegan's mind if, if they have to have something that looks and feels and tastes like meat? Eat meat. Eat meat. <laughs> it's psychological. Yeah. You know, if, if, if okay, so if, <laughs> if the vegan push really does happen, hopefully that'll mean a decrease in price of brisket. Yeah. Right. Huh. So I'm looking at the positive side of this. <laughs> yeah. There's always going to be a market for, for what we do, and yeah. it's, I'll hang on to the very end, you know? I'll, the positive side for me is if there's less demand, then there's <laughs> right. lower price. Yeah. Right. The good news it doesn't is, go that way. It's not, that doesn't seem like it's going that way right now because the damn no, prices not. keep going up. Yeah. yeah. The, the, pro, the demand for beef internationally is going through the roof. As, as the world becomes more affluent, yeah. Yeah. the protein of choice is beef. Sure. Mm -hmm. And as China. Yep. I mean, they can't get enough beef now. And it's not just China. India wants more beef too. Crazy as it sounds. Yeah. Right. You know? Yeah. I'm sorry, Grandpa. You taste delicious. <laughs> I'm going to get so much hate mail for that. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for being you. Yeah, well, you know, I can't be any other way. Always I, I, you know, I love it. I, the first time I saw someone from India put a, a dot on our map, I was floored. <laughs> and it was only a couple of weeks later, somebody put a dot on there again. Really? Yeah. And, and what are the chances? What is the irony that two people from <laughs> India are going to be in, the, in our restaurant within a couple of weeks' time? It's just those things... Now I just see that life is just one big satire. Yeah. Well, I think it's one big satire for us to be sitting here with you two uh, and the fact that we've got two guys from 
extensive backgrounds and extensive journeys uh, to sit down and talk to two bozos like us. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, whoa, whoa. Yeah. I, I was <laughs> talking about We've taken up a ton of y'all's time, both of you, uh, and I cannot be more grateful and more thankful for both of you to take this time to, to talk to us and to our listeners and to share your stories and to share all of what we covered because we covered a variety of things, which I absolutely love. skipped all over the map. That's so, what yeah. maps are for. Hey, that's what yeah. geniuses do, though. Geniuses. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You, can't, you can't confine the creative mind. <laughs> uh, why don't you tell us, Ara, where can they find you on social media? And where can uh, find you Harlem Road, Texas Barbecue.com. We're on uh, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Harlem Road, Texas Barbecue.com. Yeah. Yeah. And Wayne? Oh, man. Where are we? <laughs> so we're at, at Texas BBQ.com, is our Facebook page. You can order from the same page uh, for shipping. Social media is uh, Louis Mueller BBQ for Instagram and at Louis Miller BBQ for Twitter. Facebook, it's just Louis Miller Barbecue. And I would encourage listeners, if you haven't been to either or, you got to come out to Richmond, Texas and uh, see the black hat, totally. number one. <laughs> and then you got to go to Taylor, Texas and see the cathedral and then all the new additions as well, right? The new add-ons, the new Yeah, we're, we're trying some new things. We'll make it happen. <laughs> Give people new options to sit and eat, right? Oh, it was a well-lit room, beautiful, you know, that you got. And air-conditioned. Let's and not air forget. Yeah, <laughs> air-conditioned. Holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> but you got to go see the, the historical perspective of totally. that as well. So, yeah. anyway, as Connor said, thank you both for being our guests. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, maybe we'll go eat some chip and dip and some wings and some queso now since it's Super Bowl Sunday. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, join our family. So, To all our listeners, we're probably going to take about a 30-day break between uh, Season 2 and uh, Season 3. Thank you so much for being with us on this journey. Ara, it's awesome to kind of have you at the end of Season 2 since you helped us start this journey. It's been a pleasure and honor to see you guys go from... The first episode and where you are now. <laughs> Go so. from zero to three. Awesome. Oh, <laughs> we'll take it. We'll yeah. take it. Hey, yeah. we had one subscriber. I it's, subscribed it's, to him. It's, it's honestly been great, especially having not only just a dear friend on this podcast with me, but a guy that I admire and does a phenomenal job, and he's an amazing human being on top of it. So, Well, again, could not be more grateful. <laughs> Guys, uh, thank you so much. Like and subscribe. Five stars, five stars. We're out. The Cost of Goods Told podcast is made possible by the following sponsors. Zero Point Organics grows and supplies microgreens for over 30 major restaurants in the Houston area. Consistently perfect quality in flavor and appearance, their microgreens will be the best you or your customers have ever had every single time. Go to zero, Z-E-R-O, dash pointorganics.com. Duke's Premium Meats Home Delivery is committed to providing you with the best quality meat delivered right to your door. Offering certified Angus beef, grass-fed beef, Wagyu, and many more premium options, nobody beats Duke's Meats. Make sure to check out all that Duke has to offer at dukespremiummeats.com. Chriswell Culinary aims to create a new standard of unique, affordable hot sauces that satisfies the more developed cravings of today. Bernie Brand Texas-style hot sauce is a boldly layered sauce with density and personality to proudly represent Texas. Go to BernieBrand.com to find a retailer near you. That's Bernie, B-O-E-R-N-E, Brand.com.